Now, as Adventists, maybe you're not an Adventist if, if you're here, that's okay, um, but, but Adventists typically believe that when we die, we sleep indefinitely until the period when Jesus raises us, either in the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous at His second coming, or the second resurrection, the resurrection of the wicked after the millennium and at the time when all sin and all evil will be destroyed. But most Christians don't have that uh, same idea about death. So when they come to this passage, they don't have the confusion we have. They're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. This is enlightening. Um, Because it says things like Jesus... He died in the flesh, but he was alive in the spirit, right? And he went, he went and he preached to the, the, the spirits in prison. They're like, oh, yeah, that's just Jesus. When he died on the cross, he went down to hell, obviously. And, uh, and in hell, he preached to the wicked people that were there. And, uh, and then he, he rose up and he went to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. So... I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? Um, in fact, some Christians take this idea of preaching to the spirits in, in prison to kind of the next level, and they, they believe, uh, along with another passage, they kind of connect the dots, and they say that, that the uh, wicked dead can actually still be saved. And so they do baptism for the dead, which is all kinds of interesting. But um, as a, as a Seventh-day Adventist, I look at that, and I, I have some problems with it. And I'm like, wait, what, what's going on here? And then another interpretation that some people suggest, which is maybe more in line with my preconceived ideas about, about death, is that a pre-incarnate Christ preached to the, the wicked before the flood. And that's a nice idea. It tries to skirt over some of the issues with death. But the problem is it, it's not the whole picture, and it really ignores most of what Peter is saying. So here's a third option that I'd like to give you. And I think it makes much more sense. See, Peter isn't talking about death. He's talking about resurrection. And he's been talking about resurrection since the beginning of, of uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, he says that uh, we, we learned that the, our security in our inheritance with Christ is as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we learn that Jesus suffered and died at the hands of abusive people. And the implied conclusion is that even if we suffer and die, we have a promise of a future because of the resurrection, a future of, of hope and joy and freedom and, and, and no pain and suffering. In chapter 3, Peter is pointing our attention back to the resurrection again. And I think when we look at it with that context, things start to make more sense. For example, in verse 18, it says that Jesus died, but then was made alive. And Peter doesn't suggest a time frame in that uh, between being dead and being made alive. So the only, we, we can't just say, oh, he's alive in the spirit right as soon as he dies, right? We can't say that because in the, uh, the gospels, we find a timeline. The timeline is Jesus dies in the flesh on Friday, and then he's raised by the spirit on Sunday. Does that make sense? We're talking about the resurrection here, not about some weird thing uh, in the afterlife. And, uh, and then, what does Jesus do immediately following his resurrection and, and a short chat with Mary? He goes to the Father. In fact, he said to Mary, don't touch me, I haven't gone to my Father yet. And then in Revelation 4 and 5, we see that heaven is filled with a conundrum, a problem. Uh, it's even causing people to worry and have some sorrow. Well, angels to have some, some worry. They're asking a question. Who can open the scroll and, and undo the seals? 
In fact, Jesus has that same question. Has my sacrifice been sufficient? That's the question they're asking. Did Jesus actually do what was required for salvation? And so Jesus gets to heaven right after his resurrection. He gets to heaven and he's asking this question. and, And what's the answer? Yes, it was sufficient. In fact, the angels meet him in Revelation 4 and 5 with this glorious song of worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain and is made alive again. See, this is what Peter is talking about. He's talking about the made alive part, made alive by the Spirit, the resurrection, and it's the, it's the concrete proof that we actually have salvation. It's exciting stuff. And then uh, Peter goes back um, and, and he talks about what happens next because Jesus doesn't stay in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. He comes back to earth. And the next thing we see in the Gospels is Jesus talking to the disciples. But Peter says, wait, he makes a little stop along the way. And you know what he does? He proclaims victory to all of those wicked, evil spirits. Now, uh, this idea of spirits in prison, I think it's repeated several places in the Bible. The Bible says that Satan fell from heaven, that he drew a third of the angels down to earth. I believe that the Bible is identifying a constraint on the power of the devil and his angels. So when, when Jesus dies on the cross, he, he throws Satan out of anywhere but, but earth. He has no more influence in all of the universe. And then when he rises from the dead and goes to the Father and is confirming that, yes, I've got, um, I've, I've got the, uh, the, the approval, it all worked, I did the right thing, he comes back down and he says, you guys are under my power now. And so even demonic power on earth is restricted. It, it can't, the devil can't do as much as he could have done before because Jesus won the victory. He won earth back. He won us back. And because Jesus had the victory, we have a victory, right? And then Peter goes to, to this idea of the flood. And, and I think it reminds us, uh, obviously, the evil spirits are connected with this, the disobedient at the time of the flood. I, I think that the, the spirits, these evil angels, they were worried for their life. The flood was the destruction of all life on earth, and they were worried that maybe something was going to happen to them. And, uh, and then it, Peter contrasts their experience with the experience of Noah and his family. Noah and his family get on the ark. Did Noah and his family row themselves across a worldwide flood to safety? They didn't. They just got on the ark, an ark that God had designed, an ark that God protected. And that's our chance too. The obedience is in getting on the ark. And, and God asks us to get on the ark of his love. Jesus has offered his life for us, a ransom for all mankind. And if we say yes to him and we get on the ark of his love, then, then what we have is God's protection, his salvation, his surety. Like this is, this is the promise that Peter is suggesting. And this is the salvation in this verse. And if you weren't quite sure if this is really talking about the resurrection, then verse 21 makes it absolutely clear. We have confidence in this kind of salvation, the ark kind of salvation, uh, that that we're not going to be in the same situation that the spirits in prison are in. We have confidence in this because Jesus was raised from the dead. And guess what? He is at the right hand of God with power and authority forever. Isn't that cool? Well, hopefully that gives a little bit of context for that passage and, uh, and, and opens up something that you might not have, have understood before. Maybe you understood it and it's just me that thought it was confusing. That's possible too.
All right, so let's jump to 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you, if you read chapter 3 and most of chapter 4, you'll find that Peter continues to talk about this subject of suffering. And I'd encourage you to explore that more. There's a lot in it that we can learn. And, and we suffer in different ways as Christians, so don't, don't shy away from those passages. But we covered it a couple weeks ago, and if you don't mind, I, I want to jump into something new. Paul makes a, a, Peter rather, makes a transition here in verses 7 to 11. And he makes this statement. He says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all else, above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things. This is, this is new. He's been talking about suffering in various ways since chapter 2. So chapter 2, chapter 3, most of chapter 4, suffering, suffering, suffering. And now he, he kind of throws this new thing in and he says the end of all things is at hand. This apocalyptic rhetoric is common in the Bible. You've probably run across the idea of the day of the Lord if you've read Jeremiah. Or I, I love the one in Zephaniah. It's like so like kind of worrying almost. He says, Zephaniah 1, 7 and verse 14 as well. For the day of the Lord is at hand. The great day of the Lord is near. It's near and hastens quickly. Now, Peter says it. Zephaniah said it long before Peter. Maybe your pastor in, your, in, the, in, in the pulpit here in your church is saying it. Is it really true? Is the end of all things at hand? We like to say it as Adventists. That, that Jesus is coming soon. In fact, I've heard it probably 10 times in the month or, or so that I've been here. Uh, people are, have some decision in their life or some concern that they're, that they're expressing that's based on this idea that Jesus is coming soon. I've even heard from some, some kids that are a little worried that they might not be ready, that they're not prepared for the trials that we might face or whatever it is that we connect with the end of all things. And I'm here to tell you that whether it was Zephaniah thousands of years ago or Peter um, still thousands of years ago or me today, the truth is the end of all things is at hand because you and I, we are not promised tomorrow. Not that we should worry about what will happen tomorrow. We got enough problems today to worry, right? We don't need anything to worry about what's going to happen then. Um, but, but we just have the promise of right now, today. Today is the day for important things. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we have. And if that's the case, then we should live our lives as if the end of all things is at hand, because important things are supposed to happen today. In the great disappointments of 1844, the following um, weeks and months and years saw people that were predicting new dates for Jesus' return. 1844 didn't work out. Let's find another one. And as William Miller faced all these people that were responding with new date-setting ideas, he made this statement. He said, Today, today, and today until he comes, and I see him for whom my soul yearns. Let's not worry about what's going to happen in the future or when it's going to happen. Let's just take today, one day at a time, today, today, and today until he comes, and our souls will see the one whom, 
for whom our souls have yearned. Does that sound like a good plan? Now, Peter, he begins this, this little passage with this, this um, serious statement. And, and he says, because the end of all things is at hand, therefore, this is where he's going. Therefore, what should we do? Um, therefore is one of these, if this is the case, then do, think, say, believe, whatever, that. If this, then that. So what's his that? Because of the end of all things is near, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Some translators say it earnest and disciplined in your prayers or self-controlled and sober-minded. But however you translate it, there are two ideas. One idea is about priority. The other idea is about organization. Priority and organization. So priority. Because Jesus is coming, we must be serious in our prayers. And now that doesn't mean sober and unemotional, you know, all like, pouty-faced as we pray. That's not what it's saying. It's saying intentionality. It's, it's talking about um, focus. And so instead of just being the kind of people who pray when it's socially required, you know, you pray before food because that's what everybody as a Christian is supposed to do, right? Where did we get that? I guess we got it from Jesus. He prayed and then he broke the bread, right? Some of us really need to pray before we break the bread because we don't have enough of it. And, uh, but I think all the time we can thank God for our food. It's not a bad thing, but sometimes we do it just because we're supposed to. And, uh, and I'm sure that some of you, as you're praying, you're thinking that this is the exact same prayer I prayed at breakfast and exact same prayer I prayed yesterday and the day before that. Um, you know, you just have this rote prayer and we pray before meetings. Uh, we pray before a Bible study. Like these are the times we're supposed to pray. But I think what Peter is inviting us to in this be serious about prayer is he's inviting us to say, I actually believe that there's a God who hears me and that he has the power and desire to give me what I've asked for. Jesus, he invited us to pray. He says, he said, uh, pray, uh, give us this day our daily bread or forgive us our sins or in the words of the Psalms, lead us in paths of righteousness. These are prayers that we can pray and we can be confident that God is answering. Now, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I don't know what to pray for. For the last uh, two months or so, I've been going through a list of members of Bonner's Ferry Church, not knowing your faces, only seeing a name on a piece of paper. For a while, I didn't even know which names were connected with which, except well, that, that last name matches. Um, but, or they, they live in the same house. Look at that. <laughs> so I've been praying, and I have no idea what to pray for for you guys, which is kind of a weird experience. Um, but I've been praying, God, teach me what to pray for. And hopefully, he's been, uh, he's been teaching me how to pray. I think if we don't know what to pray for, we should probably ask, don't you think? Lord, what should I pray for? Not only should we be serious about prayer, but we should also be focused in our prayers. In other words, we should be organized. The words watchful, disciplined, self-controlled, they all, they all suggest some type of scheduling. Uh, in the Pathfinder Law, you might know it. If you're in Pathfinders, what does it say? Um, the Pathfinder Law includes to keep the, the morning What? the watch? If you're ever in the army, anybody in the military of any branch? Okay, do you know what a watch is? What's a watch? It's a guard shift. It means that this soldier is to be in this place at this time to watch for danger, right? It's a period of time that you're doing something. 
that's a schedule, right? And I think that, that Peter is not only inviting us to a, a serious, intentional prayer where we believe in the God who we're praying to and, and we trust Him, have faith that He'll answer, but He's also inviting us to a, a scheduled prayer life where we say, this time and this place is for this purpose of opening up my heart to God as my best friend. If you don't already have a prayer time, a devotional time in your experience or a devotional place in your experience, I'd like to invite you to take this verse as your invitation to a scheduled time with Jesus. History is filled with stories of answered prayer. One gentleman prayed every day for one more soul for Christ. And we're, he, he prayed this often enough and publicly enough that we know his prayer today. He prayed, give me Scotland or I die. That man was John Knox. Another man that we know for his prayers are George Mueller. He prayed for direction. God, what do you want me to do with my life? And you know what God gave him? An orphanage. And he prayed for silverware and he prayed for bedding and he prayed for everything. And, and, and God had people just drop it off on his doorstep. And, and then one day, he was, it was time for accepting kids, and he stood there waiting for kids to come, and there were no kids. He came frustrated. You've heard this story. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of nodding and smiling, so you know what I'm talking about. But he came that night, and his, his wife scolded him. Why did she scold him? He hadn't prayed for children. And she said this. She said, you prayed for silverware, but you didn't pray for children. And so that night they prayed for children. And at the break of dawn, they had children lined up to be part of that orphanage school. The Bible tells us that we have not because we ask not. Let's ask. Let's ask for great gifts from God who loves to give good gifts to those people he loves. Does God love you? Then he loves to give good gifts. Let's ask. A prayer that I have for this church is that God will pour out His Spirit on us and bring a revival of, of our spiritual lives and godliness, a revival of family love, both in families as well as in this family, uh, church family that we have, and, and also a revival of personal witness. I've been hearing a lot of good things about personal witness. I'm not trying to, to, to down anybody or make you feel bad about yourselves. That's not my point. But, but I would love to see people walking through our doors all the time because we're connecting with people in our community. Wouldn't that be cool? A revival of personal witness. And I'd li- I'm also praying that God will give us a vision, His vision for what this church should be doing. Maybe as a church, we should start praying that prayer that Christians have prayed long before us. Lord, Give me a soul to lead to you today. One more for you, Lord. Though Peter started with our need for surrender to Christ in prayer, he says that there's something that's above all ever, everything else. Above everything else, this is important. That's a pretty significant statement, especially since he started with prayer. Our surrender to Christ is foundational. It's necessary. It, nothing happens unless we're surrendered to Christ. And, and then... At the same time, if we're just kneeling before God all day long, are we really any good for anything, for anyone? We need to stand up. God has invited us to be His hands and His feet, His mouth, His ears. We're we're supposed to be the living gospel in this world. So if we're just kneeling on the ground, we cannot be actually obedient to God. And, and so I think that Peter, he starts with prayer. That's the basic foundation. But then he, he says, this is really, really, really important. Above everything, above everything else, this is the thing to pay attention to. And interestingly, he doesn't say the Sabbath. 
I love the Sabbath. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to diss on the Sabbath. Um, But he doesn't mention the Sabbath, even though the Sabbath was an issue for them at the time. The Jews were were critical of them, and so they, they were pushing them away from Jewish practice. The Gentiles were critical of them, drawing them in to worldly practices. Peter could have said, above all else, keep the Sabbath. This is important stuff. But he didn't. He could have talked about the state of the dead because that was a big issue at the time. Um, I mean, he's not afraid to, to talk about the resurrection, but he doesn't say the state of the dead is the biggest thing. And, and he doesn't say that the biggest thing is the second coming. Is the second coming an important thing? In fact, Peter makes it the basis of our hope. But, but he says the most important thing is to have fervent love for one another. Hmm. Have fervent love for one another. Why is this most important? Fervent means to have a passionate intensity. This isn't a passive, let's all love each other, you know, don't don't fight, just be loving, you know. That's not what we're talking about here. Fervent love is something I have for my wife, right? This is something I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to date my wife. I'm supposed to pursue her. I'm supposed to, to, to inspire love in her, right? I don't know about you gentlemen, but for me, that takes a little bit of effort, I I can't just coast through life and my wife feel like I love her in the way that I have promised to. Am I the only one or is that, you're on the same page with me? It takes a little bit of work. Fervent love is what he's calling the Christian church to. Fervent love, the kind of love that that embraces people. Hmm. Back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Peter describes a similar call to brotherly love, and then he says that there's these particular sins that we have to put away. It's the beginning of chapter 2 if you want to look at it. He says, put away things like malice and deceit and envy and evil speaking. These are the kinds of sins that prevent that family love. And then in, in 1 Peter 4, he says that love covers a multitude of sins. Why does love cover a multitude of sins? It's not that love dismisses a multitude of sins. It says, ah, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can be envious. You can have malice towards me, but I love you anyway. Uh Uh-uh. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about love doing away with all kinds of sin because love does away with malice. It does away with evil speaking. I mean, would you really want to speak evil of someone you love passionately? I'm not going to come here and tell you all the bad things about my wife. She's not a perfect person, but I'm not going to tell you about that. When I talk about my wife, I'm going to tell you the stuff I love about her because I love her. I'm going to, I'm going to think the best and speak the best. And, and, and I mean, hopefully I, I will. That's my, that's my aim. If you hear me saying something that's not the best, then just, just say fervent love, Jason, fervent love. And that would be okay with me. But, but do you see how love drives out that sin? It's not just that it just covers over, but it drives it away. The last few years have been a massive, uh, have seen a massive wave of asylum seekers throughout the, uh, well, really throughout the world. They're moving west mostly, north out of Africa and west into Europe and the United States. And it's a really, really big deal. Many of them have little more than the clothes on their back. Parts of the United States who have been willing to have become uh, kind of hubs for different, different ethnic groups. In Minnesota, uh, the uh, Sudanese refugees are the, the, the big focus. There's several towns that have put up these special programs adopting these people. So maybe a family would invite uh, a Sudanese family 
to live with them for a short period of time until they got resettled. And then there's a, another group that they would have that would work with job placements and another group that would, that would help figure out housing. And, and right, all these different things are put in place in that community to deal with these refugees. I think that's a kind of cool idea. That's kind of the, the kind of idea that uh, I think Peter is suggesting. Um, there's uh, one family who volunteered to host refugees, and they told the refugee resettlement group, positive action, quote, our family, myself, husband, Tony, Eve, and Luca, got involved after increasing despair over how refugees were being portrayed in the media and our government's inaction. After Fatima and Muhammad moved in, any anxieties we had about hosting dissipated immediately. We bonded, talking about food and cooking, our children and experiences of parenthood. They are kind and friendly, and we have a lot in common. And that's probably, that's probably the most important lesson that we've learned. My children got involved in helping another family, and it broadened their understanding of others' values and customs. That, they're not Christians, at least they don't say that they are, but they saw some value in, in some radical hospitality. The people that Peter was writing to in 1 Peter, these were, they were political refugees, many of them from Jerusalem. And then they were the, the Gentiles who'd been converted by their close connection with these Christians. That, that's the context that Peter's writing to. And, you know, they had experienced hospitality. Surely they had as they came into East Asia. But, but maybe they'd started to grow complacent. They'd started to kind of become cool with whatever situation they had. We, they're like, you know, we got this. And, you know, I'm glad that I'm settled now. And maybe, maybe they had stopped being radically hospitable. Now, whatever the reason that Peter says, have fervent love for one another and be hospitable to one another, I don't know exactly, but I know that it's applicable to our church today. I'm about to say something that somebody might be offended at. So, I just want, I just want to start by saying, please don't be offended. I have no intention of offending anybody. I, I love that we have potluck. I, I love that we have it every week. We have one today. Uh, it, it's called a visitor potluck. I'm not sure if that means that you have to be a visitor to come or if that is just for visiting. <laughs> One way or the other, we have a potluck today. But once a month, we have an all-church potluck. That's where you have to be there. It's required. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if it's required. They haven't told me. But um, th there's a, uh, th this idea that, and we have a whole committee that, that organizes that because it's a big deal. We have it down at the school and it's, yeah, you know it better than I do. But it's, it's a cool thing and I'm so glad that we do that. And I'm so glad that you bring great food and that, it, and that you bring your great company. It's really a good thing. And, and we should certainly do that. But I wonder if Peter is calling us to maybe a more significant hospitality. Because he says, be hospitable to one another without, what? What's that word? It starts with a G. Grumbling. Does anybody grumble when you have to eat good food? I mean, darn it, I got to eat good food today. Right? Darn it, these nice people are wanting to hang out with me. Just hate that. <laughs> no, we grumble because it costs us something. When I was a kid, my... Um, well, I, I helped out an elderly neighbor uh, down the road. He, his bike would need repair or something, and I'd, I'd do some work on it, or his lawn would be mowed. And anyway, that summer, I, I developed a, a friendly acquaintance with him. When it started to get cold, I realized that he had a cough that wasn't going away. 
and it, it kept getting worse. And I told my mom about it, who's a nurse. And she's, she's a compassionate person, and she's an over-the-top giver. And, and so when she heard about this, she went down and she looked at his living situation. He lived in a house that had no insulation. It was a little mining community built about 100 years ago, nothing, no insulation at all. He, he had only space heaters, just little electric heaters uh, sitting around his room. And when it was getting down to 10 degrees at night, he was not staying warm. His bed was at an angle kind of like this. He tried to prop it up with magazines and newspapers under, underneath the mattress to try to get it level. Because his floor, which was used to sit on the, on the ground, the, the beams sat on the ground, it had rotted away. And, and his carpet was sitting on, directly on top of dirt. This was not a sanitary environment. This was not a, a good environment at, at any situation in life, but certainly not if you have pneumonia. So my mom, she got her hands on a hospital bed, and she helped this man over to our house, put him on that bed, and for three months, she nursed him back to health in our living room. I was annoyed. <laughs> I grumbled. Kids, how many of you would grumble if you, if you lost your room to a stranger? Come on, raise your hands. You know you would. You'd grumble. Okay. So I, I didn't lose my room to a, a stranger. We only had two bedrooms, so um, my sister and I shared a room anyway. But, um, but he, we lost our living room, and we lost access to play space, and, we, and, and it cost us financially as well. We had to make other sacrifices while he was there. I was not excited, but I'm looking back, I'm so happy that my parents gave me an upbringing that prioritized people over possessions. If you haven't found hospitality to be inconvenient yet, and maybe, maybe you've said, well, I don't have the gift of hospitality. If you haven't found hospitality to be inconvenient yet, then I'd like, you, I'd like to encourage you to take this passage as a calling from God to a fervent, love-based hospitality for someone or some family. Is that a hard thing to ask? And maybe you don't know who or what timing that should work in. Obviously, we can't, I mean, I, I haven't hosted 50 different elderly gentlemen that have pneumonia. <laughs> that was a one-time experience, and we, I've done other things for neighbors and stuff, and that's been inconvenient and hospitable. So it's not the only thing that I've ever done in my life, but it's not like you do that every day, right? But maybe there's a, a time in your life and a space in your life where God is saying, I need you to help this person. Pray and ask God, is there someone that you want me to help today? And now while Peter is certainly talking about being hospitable to, you know, refugees or whoever it is that God's put into our community, he specifically says, love each other, be hospitable to each other. And now some of you might think that that's really the wrong focus, that churches shouldn't be looking at our belly button. We need to be about evangelism, Right? Can I hear an amen, somebody? No, oh, okay, yeah. I, I wasn't actually looking for an amen, but <laughs> I think that's something that we think about a lot. We don't want to be inward focused. Uh, but Peter isn't talking about making us a church that's a social club where visitors feel unwelcome. That's not where he's going with this kind of focus on loving each other. Remember back in chapter two, Peter was telling us that we are living stones. Chapter two and chapter three. Uh, actually, that might be chapter one. Anyway, he says we're living stones in this living temple that God is fitting us together. If we're all stones, then I'd say love is the mortar that holds us together. Jesus Christ, he's the chief cornerstone. He's what we align our life on. And, and what is his chief characteristic the Bible tells us about? God is love. 
So if we refuse love, then guess what we're refusing? We're refusing to be fitted into that living temple. We're saying, I don't want to be part of that temple when we refuse to love each other. Imagine a car driving down the road. Its purpose is to take passengers from point A to point B. And as the car is zipping down the highway at 60 miles an hour, the passengers hear a squeak and that turns into a grind. And it's really quite clear that this is not going to continue accomplishing its purpose. This car isn't working. This happened to me recently. We took our Toyota Camry off the car carrier when we moved up here to Bonners Ferry, and almost immediately we noticed a squeal, which is unfortunate because the wheel that we were noticing the squeal from was a, a, a wheel that I had repaired right before coming up here, so I'd done something wrong. And, uh, and I took it to Le Schwab, and they said it was this problem, and it would cost this amount of money. And I took it to Dick's, and they said it was this problem, and it would cost this amount of money. And, I, and so I had Dick's repair it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so then I, I, I took it away, and I drove it home, and this is just, just this past week. I think God gives me experiences so that I can, I can illustrate things that make sense, okay? So here, I take it home, and it starts to squeak again. But it's even worse than it was before. And I thought, well, you know, it's, they fixed the problem. It'll go away. I don't know what I was thinking. I drove it to, to Wednesday night prayer meeting. And it was like, the problems multiplied. I started push, pushing the brake, and the car would pull to the left. The wheel was tilted sideways. I started, as I drove it home on the way back from prayer meeting, I started smelling rubbery stuff. <laughs> I said to myself, there's still a problem. It, this, this car will not accomplish its purpose of getting me from point A to point B. I, I had to park the thing. Well, so yesterday I took it back to Dick's and I said, I think, I think something's still wrong. So they, they took the car and they raised it up on a jack and they, they shook the wheel just side to side. They're not supposed to move like that. I don't know if you know that, but, but wheels are supposed to stay put. They're supposed to roll and turn with the steering wheel, but they're not supposed to shake. And this thing was like wobble, wobble, shake, shake. We looked underneath. There are three bolts. If you're a car person, it was the lower ball joint. There's three bolts there that hold the entire wheel assembly onto the car. And they, the nuts were down to, to one or two threads each. If I had driven another mile or two, I would, have, I would have been like the car on the screen. I would have lost my whole tire. You know... The church is kind of like that, and I think that's what Peter's talking about when he invites the church to loving relationship, because a church is, is supposed to accomplish the mission of proclaiming God's good news to the world. Peter spends all of chapter 1 and 2 telling us that we should live our lives to the glory of God so that when somebody sees us and sees our good works, they will do what? They will glorify God. You have good memories. I'm, I'm proud of you. So if, if, there's, if that's our purpose, if we have to, to accomplish this purpose, then what Peter is saying is that the, the thing that's more important than anything else is that we love each other so that, because if we don't love each other, it's like that car with pieces falling apart. If we have pieces falling off of us as a church, can we really accomplish the purpose and mission God has called us to? So when I say that God is calling us to love each other, this isn't a mamby-pamby thing. You can't look at me and say, oh, that pastor, all he talks about is love. We need to get to the meat of the word here, guys, because I want to guarantee you something. If God is love and we are sinners, then we cannot have love without God. This is a divine thing. 
and one that requires our prayer and surrender. It's, it's something of super importance. Peter goes on and he talks about spiritual gifts in verse 10. And I think he's, what, what he's trying to do is saying, he's trying to say, here's how we apply love. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, the gifts that Peter is talking about, they're the gifts of the Spirit. And several places in the New Testament, we have lists of, of, new, of, of spiritual gifts. And most of us want to focus on that gift. And we say, oh, Dave has a gift of prophecy. I don't know if he does, but um, <laughs> this person has a gift of healing. That person has a gift of tongues. This person has the, the gift of, I don't know, we... We, we don't see God, uh, prophecy in tongues and healing very often. And so we say that, that person has the gift of music. Praise the Lord, we have good music, right? Um, but we try to find manifestations of the gift of the Spirit. Peter doesn't spend any time listing what those spiritual gifts are because he could care less. He simply wants us to use whatever gift God has given to us for a specific purpose. And what's that purpose? The purpose is that we would... Well, it says to use whatever gifts God has given you to minister to one another. The gifts are so that we can love each other and be hospitable to each other and all these things that would bind us together as a community. Now, I've spent quite a bit of time studying the Christian community and trying to figure out what is it that makes us tick? What makes us grow? And I've, I think I've come across a profound idea that you might think is silly when I say it. But I think it's a real profound idea. The thing that makes Christians grow and gives us an active personal witness is the same thing that makes churches grow and gives the church a positive impact in their community. This kind of sounds like a no-duh thing, right? Of course, you know, churches are made up of people. If people are growing, the church is growing. Well, over the next few months, the elders and I, the church board, and uh, DJ mentioned this morning that we'd be having a, uh, a business meeting coming up in November. So I'd like to invite you into this process too. But we, I want to explore what is God's vision for this church? What does He want us to do in this community? How does He want us to organize ourselves for successful ministry, for successful growth, for loving relationship, hospitality? And, and I'd like to suggest into this process, and I don't, I don't want anybody to ever be able to say, this new pastor, he's just doing his own thing, and, and you know, I, I don't want it to ever be that. I want us to come to a conclusion that God is leading us in a certain direction, and I want us to follow passionately after God, not after any man. But as we explore this idea and we say, God, where are you leading the Bonners Ferry Church as, uh, in, in mission What's your purpose and mission for me personally? When we're praying that prayer, I'd like to insert an idea. And I think it's, it's here in Peter. He says to love each other and to use our gifts to, to bless each other. And, and I think that what he's suggesting is what Jesus talked about in discipleship. Jesus spent his, his life on earth discipling people. And I think that in Matthew 28, where we get the clearest call for what the purpose of the, the Christian church is, I think that is centered in this idea of discipling. Uh, discipling others is super important, and it, and it happens, um, it includes bringing people to Jesus, obviously. They, they have to want to be hanging around Jesus to be discipled, but disciple-making also includes helping Christians become self-feeding Christians, right? It, it means that we're um, helping Christians truly understand the Bible, helping them develop their personal witness, engaging people in, in church ministry based on their spiritual gifts, and also developing their spiritual leadership. 
So these are some of the aspects that I see in discipleship and disciple-making. And discipling happens at the one-on-one level. I am not discipling you right now. I'm, I'm teaching maybe or something. Um, I'm sharing God's Word. But, but real discipleship is about life change. It's about mentorship. And it happens at the one-on-one scale. How can you teach somebody how to study the Bible for themselves without actually showing them how you study the Bible for yourself? How can you teach somebody to be an active witness for Christ unless you invite them along into your active witness and show them how you share the gospel? Is, is this a hard thing to think about? Discipling, it, it takes some sacrifice. And, and this is the kind of hospitality and loving relationship that I believe that, that Peter is calling us into, something that takes a little bit of sacrifice. And discipling happens when you take a hike together, when you do a Bible study together, when you eat at the same table together, when you volunteer alongside each other in some mission or, or um, outreach idea, um, when you mentor someone in a new ministry role and invite them into your experience as a, a leader, a spiritual leader in God's church. Discipling also happens in small groups. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to force this concept on the church, but if I could just like pull out some magic wand and say, whoosh, this would be the perfect solution for an organized system to enable discipleship, then this is kind of what I would, I would envision doing. Um, uh, some accountability groups, hopefully everybody would be involved, that would be the ideal. So accountability groups where, where you're in groups of two, three, maybe four at the most, um, but if you're in a group of four, maybe you, you split off into groups of two and find another person to, to join you. And it doesn't have to even be a member of our church. It can be somebody from the community as part of your discipleship or, or rather your accountability group. And this is, uh, th- these are unscripted groups that, uh, that, that do life together, that play together, that work together, that eat together, that have fun together, that, that pray together. Um, but, but it's unscripted. There's no defined, you meet at this time and you do these things, nothing like that. But then the, the other group would be a, an organized group, and it would be a discipleship group, maybe of three to five families, that kind of range of, of uh, a size. And it would be from older people and younger people and kids and, and families. It, it would be a whole range of people. And, and that, in that group, you would have time to socialize together, do fun things, but you'd always be praying and studying the Bible together. And you'd organize, uh, you'd be asking God, what is your call for this group, for our little group here. And then you would launch some mission. And then the church, as an uh, institution, would be the enabler of these discipleship groups and, and the empowerer of the ministry that those discipleship groups are being called into. Now that's, like I said, I'm not going to force this on the church. However, we need to organize ourselves to make it possible for us to do discipleship and, and have this hospitable, loving, fervent love that Peter's talking about. I, I think we need to do that. And it might be, and I don't know what it might be, but it, it might be that we have, to, we have to cut some things in order to enable the freedom. Because if you are like me, you look at this idea of a discipleship group and you think, where in the world will I find time for that? Is that what you were thinking when I threw this up on the board? <laughs> it's okay if you were. I believe that whatever it is, we need to do church in the context of real life with all its obligations. We can't ignore real life and just say, oh, you know, church should be like this. So we need to work together, pray together, seek God's will together, and find a way that we can organize our church in such a way that it's able to accomplish personal discipleship and growing people for God's kingdom. 
So that might mean we cut this out because it's not really focusing on that. Um, we, we add this because it really is. Now, as we seek God and we figure out what his will is, I think that we're going to come to two realizations. The first is that the vision God has for us is going to require more money, more time, more talent, more power than we think we possess. That's almost always the case. When we face a vision from God, it's a bigger vision than we can accomplish. And, and that's almost a guarantee that it's God's vision and not ours. Because we think of things we can accomplish, right? I mean, for us, we're like, yeah, let's do a, let's do a, a ministry to the homeless. Let's, let's, you know, give a gift card uh, for food every once in a while. And God's going to come in. He's like, let's build an orphanage. <laughs> and you're like... That did not come from me. <laughs> that was not my idea. I'm not saying God's asking us to build an orphanage. Do you get what I'm saying, right? It's just an illustration. So number one, um, we will come to an understanding that, that, that this is bigger than us. But number two, we will be called individually to sacrifice. It might be that we're called to sacrifice financially. It might be that we're called to sacrifice our time. It might be that we're called to sacrifice something much dearer to our hearts, our hopes and our dreams. I don't know what God's going to call us to sacrifice. It certainly won't be my calling. I don't have a clue what, what's best for you, what's best for this church, what's best for Bonner's Ferry. I don't know. But I know that as we seek God, He knows, and it will be safe to trust His direction, even if it means our sacrifice. 1 Peter 3, verse 11, Peter finishes his thought by reminding us that we are given gifts he says that our gifts are to be used for God's glory. If we speak, let's speak the words of God. If we minister, let's minister with all our God-given abilities so that in all things God may be glorified because to Jesus Christ belong all the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.